up on today's show, Canada has deployed special forces to Ukraine. We'll get some expert analysis. Roughly half of Canadians report feeling financially insecure heading into the new year. We'll chat with Kelly Keene, a personal finance educator. And we'll speak with Dr. Roberta Bondar, Canada's first female to go to space. Across all of our engagements, um, we have uh, made clear the clear preference for finding um, a diplomatic resolution to uh, the uh, conflict and to de-escalate the the situation. There are some 100,000 Russian soldiers near Ukraine's borders, uh, and in that sense, the threat to Ukraine is unprecedented. So the president asked me to underscore once again uh, our commitment uh, to Ukraine's territorial integrity, to its sovereignty, uh, to its independence. That is U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken um, in Ukraine, Kiev, in a meeting with the president of Ukraine, talking about the situation there as it continues to be incredibly, incredibly tense. Um, Lots of different people saying we could be headed to war at any time now. We know that Canadian Special Forces soldiers from Canada are operating in Ukraine. Uh, They have a few different uh, jobs at hand, Um, but uh, it's an extremely tense situation. So to talk a bit about it, we're going to bring in Andrew Rasoulis now, who is a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. We've had him on the show before. Andrew, uh, thank you for joining us again today. I appreciate it. Very much. Uh, thank you, Shay, for having me on your show again. Great to talk to you. Interesting times, as you say. Yeah, I mean, we talked about this a while ago, and sort of there was indications that things could be heading in this direction. But um, just, I mean, when I hear all this talk, Andrew, and I, I guess maybe I'm just incredibly naive, but all of these different politicians and heads of state saying, you know what, we're on the brink of war, and this could happen at any moment. I mean, is that, how realistic is it that we could have an armed conflict in Europe, um, you know, at any moment? I think both options are very realistic, both the uh, the war option and the diplomatic solution option. Um, both are real. And right now, the emphasis is being put on diplomacy. Uh, Blinken, as you mentioned, uh, is in Kiev today, and then he's meeting with uh, Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, in Geneva on Friday. Uh, so these are uh, the very highest levels other than, you know, uh, Putin and, and Biden meeting. Uh, so this is the next level down. Uh, the emphasis clearly is to avoid a war uh, for both sides, and both sides have very strong principled positions, uh, which are not the same. Uh, the United States is uh, very much for a rules-based world order, the right uh, for uh, those nations who wish to join the alliance to join the alliance, but provided there's consensus, and we can talk about that one. Uh, from the Russian point of view, they are looking at a, at a sphere of influence situation, they have never recovered from the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, and they have been trying to reestablish some measure of a sphere of influence based on realpolitik, power politics, in the, what's known as the former Soviet space or the former Soviet Union or even imperial Russian space. That's what's at stake now. And the, there's diplomatic options, and we'll see where we go. I can discuss that if you wish. Yeah, are there diplomatic options? That's what I'm wondering, because I think Russia, we know the hand that they've played to this point is it's a classic case of brinkmanship and, and hoping that eventually it wouldn't get to this point. At some point, um, if it doesn't, do they not have to follow up this rhetoric and this saber-rattling and this threatening with actual action um, in order to, 
almost save face, but I mean, you can't, you, if, if it's the West essentially calling their bluff, it's disastrous for them, is it not? Yeah, well, they, exactly. And the Russians are not going to just surrender or walk right. home and say, well, we tried, we lost. So the diplomatic solution has to work on the principle of, uh, is Ukraine going to go into NATO? We all know that, practically speaking, it's not going in anytime soon. There is no consensus within the NATO alliance to accept Ukraine. So Ukraine has the right to apply, but the alliance must have consensus to accept. That is not the case. So we know that in a real-world situation, Ukraine is not joining NATO anytime soon. So that's a given. So we need a diplomatic wording for this situation to be agreed on. And things like a pause on enlargement, a moratorium on enlargement, something that's sort of in the middle that gives the West, they don't walk away from their principles of rules-based system. And the Russians can say the NATO is not moving further into Ukraine and not therefore threatening their sphere of influence and their space. So, and the uh, venue of Vienna, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, is actually uh, a natural place to park this uh, diplomatic uh, solution because the OSCE is mandate is actually security architecture of Europe, including the North Atlantic with Canada and the United States. And the Russians, since 1991, have actually been pushing for the OSCE to establish a more comprehensive security framework. This is where potentially we may have an embedded diplomatic solution if everyone keeps working at it. Okay. Uh, and I think, you know, while, the, while Russia has been obviously taking actions that would threaten war, it seems to me the West has been extremely careful in sticking to we're going to um, pursue diplomatic solutions here. They've talked a lot about economic pain that Russia would experience, but it seems to me that everybody in the West is dead set against going to war uh, and want to try and do everything like you say. They want to stick to that diplomatic path. Correct. And I think right now that's where the emphasis is. Okay, so where do we go from here? As you say, we've got these high-level meetings right now. Um is there, is there room to sort of have everybody step back and, and, and take a breath and, and find the solution? Is that road to a diplomatic solution still there? Well, I think a lot, yeah, so the, the road is there. And I think um, uh, the meeting Friday uh, between Blinken and Lavrov uh, is, is kind of the next pivotal step in this road. And, of course, these are, these are confidential discussions that will take place. So they'll have to find the diplomatic language that I was, yeah. I was just tell you my opinion in terms of, you know, pause, a moratorium, on enlargement, that kind of language. But a security architecture is what they're looking for. The Americans and the Russians have already agreed to move forward on things like potentially arms control, confidence-building measures. That was already agreed uh, a few weeks ago as a basic principle of further discussion. And the NATO alliance has also agreed with the Russia on that basis in terms of the NATO-Russia Council. So there is that, but that's not sufficient enough. And they've got to move to this larger larger framework of security, and that's where, where the game goes. And I might just want to add for you and your listeners that it just was announced today, a uh, Turkish spokesperson for the, the president of, Ukraine, of Turkey uh, said that the Turks are, have made an offer to host a meeting between okay. uh, Putin and Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, to try and broker some measure of understanding between those two. So there's another diplomatic angle in there. The Turkish role has been muted, muted before, 
and it hasn't really been picked up on. But the Turks have raised it again at a time when diplomacy is is uh, is key key in everyone's attention span. So we'll see. I mean, there's a there are potential options here, and again, I keep emphasizing. Uh, the diplomatic side, because there's a lot of activity going on. And there's a lot at stake, and everyone's interest is actually a peaceful solution. Yeah, a, a ton at stake. Um, I just got some audio from our Prime Minister. He was talking about this situation this morning. Let's give that a quick listen, and then we can talk about what Canada's role in all of this is. And we're working with our international partners and colleagues to make it very, very clear that Russian aggression and further incursion into Ukraine is absolutely unacceptable. Uh, We are standing there with diplomatic responses, uh, with sanctions, uh, with uh, a full press uh, on the international stage. Okay, so there's Trudeau, Andrew, saying what he's been saying all along, diplomatic pressure and economic pressure. He hasn't changed. No, exactly. And that is, I mean, from my point of view, that is the correct path. Um, I mean, Canada is up there playing the diplomatic game right now, and I think that's that's actually where we should be. That's why we haven't actually announced a decision on the Ukrainian request for arms, because that's not sort of, but that's, we've done a lot in terms of our military capacity with Ukraine, in terms of uh, training and assistance. But right now, the emphasis is, as the Prime Minister has said, on diplomacy. And, uh, you know, Foreign Minister Jali has been has been talking about that as well. And she's doing a lot of uh, shuttle diplomacy. So she's just uh, been to Kiev, or I think she's still there, but she's going off to Paris uh, and Brussels. So she's she's representing Canada in the diplomatic game right now, which is first and foremost. So I think the Canadian government has stepped up to the plate on this one. Okay, so um, watch and wait and see what happens on Friday. Hey, that's the next sort of signpost that's for you? That's the next key day, yep. Okay. We'll see what happens. Excellent. Andrew, thank you so much for your insight. It's extremely valuable. I appreciate it very much. You're uh, you're very welcome, and anytime, Shane. Yeah, we'll Cheers. check in again. Yeah, we'll, we'll chat okay. soon. Thanks, Andrew. Bye. That is Andrew Rasoulis, who is a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and uh, our go-to guy on everything in this region. Uh, he, he knows what's what. Earlier this week, we were talking about a financial report that came out that uh, I think um, it was just more of the same. We, we, we'd seen these reports before uh, in terms of just the financial insecurity that Canadians are feeling, and it's it's pronounced. There, there's no doubt about it. Basically, the survey was saying that um, about half of Canadians don't feel they're financially secure, uh, secure to get through the next year. A lot of them saying, you know, we're about 200 bucks away from not being able to um, meet all of our financial ob- obligations. Just 27% said, yeah, we can, we can handle what comes up. If, you know, if there was some sort of unforeseen event in the next year or so, we'd be okay. We'd be able to handle this. Just 27%. Then you get the inflation numbers that come out today, 4.8%, the highest we've seen since 1991. It's not getting any easier. Sometimes it can all feel a little bit overwhelming. So joining us to walk through here and other things we can do is uh, one of our very favorite guests. We have Kelly Keene. Joining us now, Kelly, of course, uh, you know her, you love her. She's a personal finance educator and a best-selling author of Talk Money to Me. Hi, Kelly. Thank you for joining us. Oh, Shay, always great to be with you. Thanks for having me. And we should mention you've got a brand new book out, right? I do. Thank you. Yeah, it's called uh, Rich Girl, Broke Girl. Excellent. Okay. Um, and, and the way you do it, Kelly, works, I think, for so many people because it's just, it's simple and it's straightforward and it makes sense. So, um Aside from getting the books, which would be a good start, when you when you see the survey that came out this week, you know, with 55% of Canadians saying they can cover expenses for the next year, 
you know, roughly half saying, yeah, I don't know if we can. 43% say they're very worried about their debt. Are you surprised by the situation that a lot of Canadians are self-reporting themselves to be in? No, I, I mean, I'm not surprised. I, I, I guess a little bit, like you said, that, that number 27% are doing all right. Yeah, yeah that, like, that's a lot lower than I anticipated. But as you also mentioned, right, this survey comes out every year. Yes, it's the worst since they've been coming out since 2017. Um, and, you know, if you kind of, like, wade through it, if you, if you did, Shay, I guess... Also, what, what is concerning to me is, like, this pile-on effect of when people are feeling bad already, you yeah. know? It's also yeah. like, are you also worried how you're not saving right now? And, and your retirement, it's like, oh, good grief. If you are going through a tough time, you've lost your job or you are you know been cut back or, or had something happen in your family, you might see interest rates going up on your line of credit, your mortgage, uh, like you said, inflation, food costs. Like, just deal with what you can deal with and... Find your locus of control, because here's the issue as well, is when it gets to the point of overwhelm, people just go into apathy. You know, they just watch Netflix, drink a glass of wine. I get it. Not judging. Um, But that means that you're not digging in, and it means that the situation is likely going to get worse. So, for example... I've had a number of readers reach out to me that they've had things go into collections, some unjustified, some justified. Uh, but there were things that they could have done, Shay, before it got to that. I'm actually doing an Instagram Live tomorrow answering people's qu- questions on credit and credit Good. scores and what to do if you have a collection agency after you. But, you know, if you're in apathy, you're not opening up your credit card statement, you're probably missing payments. And if you don't contact your creditors in times of distress, they're going to assume the worst, and that is never a good situation to be in. But Kelly, we're in a position, and I'm not excusing it, but I'm saying I think I can understand it um, in a sense that, okay, you hear about the rate of inflation, the cost of living going up 5% over the course of last year, gas prices up 33%, the pandemic is coming back and we're causing problems with employment here, there, and everywhere, and all these sorts of things. And I think for a lot of people, you sit back and go, well, I can't control anything of those things. There's nothing I can do about that. This is all happening to me. And -hmm. I can see why people say, well, I'm just going to put my hands up in the air and say, I mean, the world sucks and it's out to get me. 100%. 100%. Feel that frustration and do it for a day or two, a night or two, an hour or two, and then get back to the control that you can reclaim. Because there is always something that you can do. Uh, for example, if, you know, you just cannot pay your credit card, you, you can't do it, you can't pay your bills, yeah. not contacting your creditors is going to make it so much worse. At least if you're proactive, especially before you've missed a payment, because so many millions of people uh, are going through financial distress, where pre, pre-COVID, maybe you were one of, you know, not as many, but because so many people are going through it, the bank is expecting your call. Your yeah. creditors are expecting the call, and you put it in their hands to say, hey, work with me. Maybe you're still going to get a huge ding to your credit score and all of that. Who cares if you're not applying for new credit right away anyway? It doesn't matter. But at least if you can, you know, mitigate the damage, you're going to feel better just knowing where you sit, putting those due dates in your calendar, putting reminders contacting, like I said, the creditor way in advance, because if you do it the day before your credit card is due or your automatic payment comes out, it's just going to be siphoned through. And then, 
you know, seeing what you can do, like talking with a nonprofit credit counselor, talking with an insolvency trustee. You don't have to go down that route. Like I've got some really good friends that are insolvency trustees, and they're like, hey, tell your, your readers they can contact us anonymously. They don't even have to give their real name. Why not take the free guidance? You're always yeah. going to get a free initial call with these people. In Alberta, we've got money mentors. We've got some great nonprofit credit counselors. Take the free call and see if maybe there's something you can do. But like you said, if you just throw your hands up in the air and say, life is unfair, this sucks, and it does, um, it's not, no one's coming to your door to get you out of it. Um, the other thing, okay, so there's some ways you can sort of get yourself out of it. How about not getting yourself into it? Because part of this survey, Kelly, said that um, 27% yes said we can get through the next year even if something happens without bringing on debt. 70% said oh it's going to cost us more. We're going to we're going to need more debt. Um, a third say they're having a hard time paying down their debt. 45% say they've taken on too much debt over the past year. Or so so how do you if you're in a position where these things come up and you need to you need to survive and a lot of people will turn to debt to do that. Are there alternatives? where you don't end up in trouble a year down the road because now you've got a new problem. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it comes back to the old conversation of the want versus the need of really, like, digging into your finances. And i got to tell you, I hate budgets. I don't budget, don't yeah. like them. But I, I do, you know, recommend in my book, and I do it with my husband twice a year, what I call my 30-day anti-budget, where we dig into our finances. And i got to tell you, we did it recently, and what was screaming at me as, as something that ballooned was subscriptions. Like, I, I have so many <laughs> subscriptions that I subscribed to during COVID, and I was like, holy cow, when you add those up, and then, and then you multiply it by 12, and you see how much you're spending on whatever it is, maybe food delivery, uh, food wastage. Obviously, we're not traveling and, and, and yeah. entertaining, but... There's always something that we're, we're not as mindful of our money that we could be. Now, some people may be screaming, uh, listening to this, saying, are you kidding me? They have cut back every yeah. single cent they, they could. They've got nothing. Okay, fair enough. I hear that. Then you've got to look at the other side of the ledger. And you have to look at where can you bring in more income? Where can you bring in more money? Um, what is going on with your employer? Is there anything there in matching programs? Or, you know, it might not be perfect. It might be a second job. It might be a third job. It might be, you know, some other stuff, but it's not going to be forever. And I've got to tell you, if you've got a plan, and yes, I've got all of that, those calculators and everything in my books. And by the way, if you can't afford the book, you can get it for free at the library. Dig into that. Get out of that state of apathy, which, yes, might make you feel angry and frustrated and really irritable, but you're never going to get to financial resiliency if you don't take action. And you know what, Shay, sometimes you see these credit card statements like, well, if I only pay my minimum payment, it's going to take me 62 yeah, years. Yeah. Before. <laughs> but, but you get on a calculator and you see, I don't know, you know, five bucks more a day. You're going to have that, that blown away in like two or three years. You're like, I can do that. Yeah. Five bucks a day. I can do that. That gets exciting. And now you've got some forward momentum and some agency and some self-efficacy that you actually want to take more steps. And then you've got some positive momentum. Yeah, if it seems attainable. Um, 
when we're talking about the fact that you know you're trying to you're trying to cut back as much as possible, people say they can't save. I mean, the vast majority are saying they're having a horrible time saving right now. I think eighty uh, percent struggling to pay back debt and things like that. And then you've got people saying, "Yeah, I'm two hundred bucks away from just it, it's all going to collapse on me and all fall apart." How can you build up that reserve fund, that safety net? Well, at the same time, you're struggling to to handle just the bills that are coming in every month. Yeah. And for those individuals, I suspect, I don't know, but the case studies that I, I, I did in the last two books, I suspect that a lot of that crippling um, suffocation of not having that cushion yeah. is because they're in so much debt. Like, a, a couple of the case studies, they were, like, one of my characters was paying, like, six, $700 in, in high interest rate credit card debt. How can you possibly create a cushion for yourself and pay off debt when you're in that situation and you're paying 700 bucks a month. I don't know too many people who are like, yeah, I just got an extra 700 bucks <laughs> a month to service your credit card debt. That's when you need help. That's when you need help. Like I said, you, you need someone. And please, when you reach out, do your research. Make sure they are a licensed nonprofit credit counselor or they are a licensed insolvency trustee. There are some bad actors out there saying they can help you get out of debt, saying they can repair your credit score in a couple of months, which is not true. So, you know, you also have to realize you're really beaten down usually emotionally during these times. It's hard to speak up for yourself and know your rights and do your research, but you have to do that. And if that's a situation, Shay, you've got to get some help. It's unlikely you're going to get out of it yourself. You just have to get started though, right? I mean, you've just got to say, I got to do something here. And they'll take the shame and the embarrassment away. I mean, you know, it, it, it's, it's so interesting. If somebody has a health issue, mental health, um, they've got a cancer diagnosis, we want people to talk about it. We have Facebook groups. We, we run for the cure. But when it comes to a lack of money, when it comes to a debt issue, we clam up. We don't say anything. We start to retreat. You're not seeing your friends and family. It can spiral into health and mental health issues. So please reach out to the people that they do this every day. There is no shame and embarrassment. I, I mean, for heaven's sakes, look at what the world has gone through. If yeah. you've lost your job, it, like even if it was just, hey, you spent too much and it was on high interest rate credit cards and you need some help getting out, um, just know there's a light at the end of the tunnel and put those judgments down and, and you know, take a deep breath, get some help and realize it's never as bad as you think. There is always a way out. Okay. Uh, Kelly, because you're so good to us, let's be good to you. The two books, um, uh, what it, are they called? It, Talk Money to Me and Rich Girl, Poor Girl? Yeah, uh, Rich Girl, Broke Girl. That Broke girl. was the original title. That's so kind of you, think, Shay. Yeah, you can get them everywhere. And like I said, you can't afford them. You need help. Um, they're, they're at the library. Okay, and you're doing an Instagram tomorrow if people have questions? Yeah, I'm doing an Instagram live at 1 o'clock Mountain Time. And, yeah, we're talking about credit, credit scores, collection agencies. If you don't want to, um, like, give your question, you can just direct message me or send me a message at info at kellykeen.com, and I promise I won't, I won't mention your name. Fantastic. Kelly, thank you so much. Thank you, Shay. Be well. Thank yeah. you, my friend. You too. Appreciate it. Bye. Uh, there's Kelly Keene, who is a personal finance educator and best-selling author of Talk Money to Me in her new book. I think it just came out last month, um, Rich Girl, Broke Girl. All right. Really looking forward to this next conversation. A uh, bit of a thrill. We get to chat with Dr. Roberta Bonder who 30 years ago this weekend became the first female Canadian to go to space. An eight-day trip on board the Space Shuttle Discovery. She left Earth 
January 22nd of 1992. And she joins us now to tell us all about that and what's happened since. Uh, Dr. Bonder, thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Um, 30 years ago, I'm trying to think of what I was doing 30 years ago. And yeah, nothing really stands out now. Of course, I didn't go to space, but that memory, um, how vivid is it after three decades? You know, a day that you literally made history, something that just a handful of people have done. What's that memory like now, three decades later? Well, I can tell you a lot of it's fresh, certainly because I, I talk to students about it quite a bit and I reflect on it every day. I think about things. I, I don't take things for granted as much now as I perhaps did before my flight. So it's a, a lot of the, the actual memories. They're kind of embedded sometimes in sense of smell and <laughs> sound and music. So, yeah, a lot of it's uh, still pretty fresh. Um, I'm wondering, I find when it comes to memory, sometimes my relationship to a memory will change as I get older and perhaps a little wiser and learn some things, and I look back on things a little differently than I did at the time. Has your relationship to the memory changed over 30 years? Oh, you're quite right. I think the brain, as a neurologist, I, I always respected the brain's ability, rightly or wrongly, to shuffle the deck. And sometimes we remember things either incorrectly uh, in a good sense or maybe the other way around, too. But I do think that memories are, are really important. They do inform us about our past and how we did things. But also, sometimes I could wish for a crystal ball so I could go back and, and tell people or tell myself, a uh, younger me, uh, about some of the views that I have now and perhaps make that person a little wiser. Um, where does it... I can I can only imagine what it would be like to have such a monumental um, occurrence in one's life, something like leaving the planet and traveling to space, being the first female Canadian to ever do it. Um, where does it rank in terms of things that you think about and things that sort of, you know, when you look back on your life, and is it is it sort of towering above everything else? There are many peaks in my life, but I do feel, as far as that particular space moment for Canada, oh, and for me personally, professionally, was that I was the, although I was the second Canadian to fly in space, I was the first one after the Challenger accident. And it's not that I wanted to be first after the Challenger accident, it's just that I had to do all this new bailout training that no Canadian had done, and I didn't have any mentors, I didn't have anyone to talk to. Being the first sometimes is means that you're kind of on the prow of a ship and there's no other ship around. Uh, but I did learn a lot of a lot of things uh, being the first, and those have stood me in good stead all these years. And certainly, looking out the window from the shuttle aft flight deck uh, is something I will never forget. You know, whenever I've read accounts of people who've been to space or spoken with them, um, that seems to be the the message they all share. Um, once you've left the planet and you look back down on it, it really, there's a paradigm shift. It changes the way you view the world. Did that happen for you? What happened for me, and, and I can't speak for the other astronauts, but I suspect this is, this is true, is that it's the reality of being up there and seeing the Earth as a planet. Now, it sounds trite to some people, but all of us learned in school that the Earth was the third planet from the sun. And we go, yeah, that's right, ho-hum. And then in the moment that we actually see and grasp the fact that the Earth is a planet, we actually see there's an edge to it. We actually see that there are stars out there that don't twinkle. We see a black that's unfathomable. All of those things 
help create an emotional space that nothing else can fill. Does it change the way you view how important it is to preserve what we have? And and, um, does it change your opinion on how fragile our, our planet is? What it does for me is to really reinforce the fact that the planet is alone right now. I mean, sure, there's something else out there in the universe, but we haven't got there yet. And it really reinforces the fact that their life on the planet is quite fragile. It also brings to mind that the planet is in a state of evolution. It will be until its life is over, uh, when it gets gobbled up by the sun becoming a red giant. So we can't sit and think that this planet is the way it is and we need to keep it the way it is. What we have to do is minimize human impacts on the natural world, and that involves a, a, a deep dive into ethics. Um, how has that affected what you do over the last 30 years? I know you've been very busy. You have all kinds of different projects. How has that sort of informed the way you've tackled life for the last 30 years? I think of the last 30 years in probably three groups of 10, and that's the first 10 was supporting something like two dozen missions of astronauts and cosmonauts looking at certain aspects of how astronauts uh, cope with getting into space and coming back to the planet and trying to have uh, individuals down here uh, basically use the same kind of of testing situations for people with different diseases. Uh, The second group of 10 would be when I decided to leave that research behind and to go across Canada with my big cameras and photograph all the national parks and then continue on to try to explore other arid edges of the planet. And then the last 10 Uh, It really is about the foundation that bears my name, looking at how best to help other people share the passion that they see for certain things in the natural environment, to connect and reconnect people to the natural world for our mental health, for good mental health, and for finding a, a new way of looking at things to stimulate creativity and inspire us. Tell us more about that foundation. Um, it, it sounds like fascinating work. Uh, what, I mean, how do you, how do you fo- what are you focused on? What kind of projects are you trying to bring forward? I like your word focus because, indeed, we use the technology of photography, which is more or less a universal tool, to try to get people to say, okay, look, tell me what you're looking at and come on into the natural world. And, and so people will take a point-and-shoot shot, and it doesn't really show anything, and after people can't figure out what that's all about. And what we try to say is, okay, we'll provide you some tools and some, some training and take a start looking at what's out there. What, what is it you're trying to, to see? And, and getting people to look at different colors of green, textures, learn about the artistic elements in a photograph, learn how one can express my, oneself using the art form through the technology of photography and then allowing us to ask questions of science about why certain things happen or what, what we should do to, to minimize your impact. So all of that helps us to engage with the natural world, and, we, and I firmly believe that if we love something, we'll want to protect it, and that's what the foundation is about, trying to get people to really appreciate the natural environment and how important it is that we conserve and minimize our impact on it. Dr. Bonder, all those three groupings of 10 years, um, there's a theme through, and I'm sure you're well aware of this. It's all about exploring and learning. Um, That sort of, has that been the guiding principle of your life? Explore, learn what's out there? You've said it many times in this interview. Oh, absolutely. My my parents and, and, and my sister as well, we were all involved in tenting at a very early age, 
And there wasn't a lot of technological distractions except for these wonderful cameras that my uncle would sell in his drugstore as a pharmacist. Uh, and, and my dad loved photography. So we'd be doing that. My mother would, it would help us look at things more critically, look at butterflies. And, you know, I, just all the way through, they, they prized learning. They, they grew up in the Depression era. And it was a time when people couldn't go on to university, but they tried to learn from books in the library. They they took us out on, on field trips as, as much as possible. And my mother was a wonderful teacher and she loved sharing. So it was a very rich background in order for me to be able to develop the value system that I had. And that's what I took up in space with me. And that's what I use have used for the rest of my life. What's your relationship with space now and with space programs and space exploration and what we're seeing with sort of entrepreneurial boutique trips and things like that? What are your thoughts on where we are in terms of space right now? My personal my personal involvement uh, is, is, is part of my project looking at migratory birds. We're looking at space imagery to get a better grasp of the distances and habitats that these uh, birds require. In terms of the space program, for example, in Canada, we continue to do space science. We continue to work on robotic systems that will be probably used on the Gateway Project around the moon and off into the future. We have Canadians involved in robotic systems on Mars. We have a lot of great scientists involved in astronomy, uh, doing partnerships of life science. We've got all kinds of great opportunities for Canadians in the space program. But when I look at something like you're speaking about the most recent billionaire flights. Yeah. Uh, these are instances where we can't tell people how to spend their money, even if we're the ones that give them the money to spend. Uh, it is, it's something that it's, again, back to the ethics of exploration and discovery. What, uh, what is, is the rest of humanity going to benefit? Are we going to benefit by some of the technologies that are being developed by these kinds of right. flights? And perhaps we are. Other people might argue that there are things that we're doing to the environment just in terms of having a launch facility near some place where you have a wildlife uh, refuge. Of course, that's exactly where the Cape is. Uh, so there are ways of, of looking at this that have pros and cons. But I think for most people, it, it's, it's quite irksome to see billionaires spending tons of money so that they can go and play with their smarties in space. That's something that, uh, that doesn't resonate very well given certainly the COVID issues we have and the and the, the ongoing issues always of education and poverty and war. Inequity, yeah. Uh, last one before I let you go. I've kept you too long, but I'm just wondering, um, like you say, you were on the prow of a ship. I mean, you as much, you know, you went to space, but in a lot of ways you were a pioneer. You were a trailblazer. There was nobody like you that had done this before, especially in our country. I've always wondered for somebody who's in that unique position where you know you're inspiring and you're blazing a trail. Is that a, is that a heavy burden? Is that an honor? And is it something that you considered along in your journey, or was it more just about this is what you wanted to do? Wow. Uh, burden would not be it. Responsibility, for sure. Enlightenment, definitely. Trying to make the world better, obviously. And the bottom line for me is that it's not over yet, that I keep leveraging one experience with something else that I feel is important to me and to my value system. And that's what keeps me going. Dr. Bonder, I can't thank you enough uh, for your time this morning. I appreciate it very much. Uh, Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you.
That is Dr. Roberta Bondar, who is Canada's first ever female astronaut. We're looking back 30 years ago. It was January 22nd of 1992 when she blasted off aboard the space shuttle uh, Discovery and spent eight days orbiting the planet. And, uh, you know, I mean, just a, a long list of firsts. Um, and we know that she's inspired so many people uh, in the years since. Um, a remarkable, remarkable Canadian. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.